So this morning's sermon, um, this is for any of you who have ever held an opinion, a preference, or a conviction. So if you haven't had one of those, then you're, you, get, you get take a pass on this one. But if you've ever held an opinion, a preference, or a conviction, then this applies to you. I think that's most of us, if not all of us, at one time or another, where we've We've wanted something done a certain way. We've desired that something be done a certain way. Sometimes we ask for, we demand our way, or, or we just secretly hope that everybody will do it our way. We have our opinion of how things should be done, and we desire it a certain way, right? It, what compounds the problem is the fact that we are all so different. We come from different backgrounds, different nationalities, different um, places that we've lived, different um, social classes, I, I, simple stuff. There are TV shows that, that I watch that my wife has zero interest in. She does not want to see those, and vice versa. Uh, there is music that I will turn up loud in the car that, that you might just prefer to cover your ears. I don't mean because it's crude or anything like that. It's just maybe not a style that you would enjoy. There are sports events and cultural events that, that I would pay to go see that that for some of you, somebody couldn't pay you enough to go see those. I, I understand that, and vice versa. We all have our preferences about fashion and politics and shopping and policies and sports and finances and you name it. And the challenge is to hold those things loosely. That's what this series of messages is about, holding things loosely. We're looking at attitudes and desires and things that, that the Bible challenges us on not gripping as tightly as we might be tempted to do. And so we're going to talk this morning about opinions, preferences, and convictions. I'm going to be in Romans chapter 14. We're going to spend our whole time in Romans 14, so you can scroll there or turn there if you'd like. As you're turning there, let me just make a distinction that I think is helpful for us as believers in Jesus Christ. We, we understand opinions and preferences. We all have them. There are plenty of convictions as well, but there are also commands. Commands are those clear, unequivocal statements in Scripture that this is the will of God. This is what God desires. This is what God says. A conviction is something that's more of a, a personal inference that I draw from Scripture. So as I am reading Scripture and I am seeking to apply it to my life, I, I build some personal convictions concerning how I live or what I do based on inferences I take from out of Scripture. Things that may not have unambiguous commands related to them, but, but I have been convicted of in some way. So I'll, I'll offer you an example. Um, it's probably been 25 years or so um, that I stopped drinking caffeinated coffee. I know that makes some of you sad. It wasn't because I had any great conviction. It was because I worked a, a part-time job on Saturday mornings, early Saturday mornings, and I drank a lot of coffee on those Saturday mornings. And then Sunday mornings, I was getting ready for church and doing church, and, and I didn't drink any coffee. And by Sunday afternoons, I would get this splitting headache. And, and I finally made the connection that the caffeine was what was causing that. And so I, I, I just decided decided that I, I wouldn't have it in that kind of quantity, and so I, I drink what some of you would politely refer to as coffee-flavored water. It's just, you know, it's got the sort of the feeling of something warm and coffee-flavored, just not the effect that goes with it. We all agree that caffeine is a natural stimulant. It's in cocoa beans, it's in coffee beans, it's in herbs that, that are used for tea. 
when we talk about that, there's clear commands in Scripture concerning substances that, that could act as stimulants, substances that, that can affect us in some way, um, wine, similar substances. There's a couple of clear commands in Scripture. Ephesians 5.18 speaks of drunkenness. Do not be drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's a prohibition against drunkenness. And 1 Corinthians 6.12, Paul essentially elaborates on that when he says, yes, there are things that are good and lawful, and yet for me, they would become sinful if they take control of me, and so I will not yield control of my mind or my body to this substance. So it, it, it seems clear from Scripture that to yield my mind and body in some way to some substance is, is mutiny against God. It is against God's authority over my life. So the command... God forbids intoxication. God forbids yielding my mind and body to, to his control in any way. That's clear. The, the conviction then for some would come if in their understanding then of that command and their understanding of scripture, they determined that it would be sinful for them to participate in a substance like that. So some people will abstain completely from any form of alcohol or anything like that. Um, in, in some cases, it's because they've been around people or they themselves have struggled with substance issues and they have come to the place that it's not merely a preference, but it's a personal conviction at this point, that that's something that I choose to abstain from. For me, not ingesting caffeine is, is a preference because I, I eat too much chocolate, and, and I know there's caffeine in chocolate, um, so I still get it through there, but it's a, it's a preference on my part that it, I, I, I don't seek to abstain by way of conviction in any way. The other illustration I, I would think along these lines that's probably helpful, at least in, in the culture that we're in now and, and the things that we're having to think through, is, is education. The, the scripture is very clear in Ephesians 6.1 that we are to parents, fathers, bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You are to instruct your children in the ways of the Lord. Where that then gets played out and, and can even be divisive, as we're going to see as Romans 14 is dealing with different issues. That's one that, that we deal with in modern Christianity. What, what become your convictions that arise out of the biblical command about bringing your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Is there a personal conviction that then influences you concerning your choice of your, your children's education as to where you send them for education? You may have a conviction about that, or it may merely be largely a preference. You may believe, I, I'm I am doing, I am fulfilling the command of Ephesians 6, and, and what I do in terms of education is preference. Um, if I choose a parochial Christian school, say that I, I am convicted of Christian school, then which school I pick, that's the preference issue. Uh, uniforms, not uniforms, different, you know, different sorts of rules and such. Um, so command, conviction, preference. I just want to try to, to separate those, because I think that's important for understanding of this. Where scripture speaks in terms of command, we, we don't have room to mess with that. So the fact that the word of God, the Bible, is the word of God, is an authoritative statement. It is what scripture professes to be. It is in the category of command. And so regardless of my convictions about the word of God, being the Bible being the word of God, 
it, that's irrelevant in the sense that it doesn't change the reality. It doesn't change the truth, regardless of how my conviction works. It's still the word of God. Salvation or justification by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, um, that's in the category of command. I, I, I don't alter that because that's what Scripture teaches. We are saved by God's grace and by faith fully in Jesus Christ. There is no salvation apart from that. So clear commands in Scripture. We could put several under abstaining from sexual immorality, um, regarding valuing all human life, um, pursuing truth and holiness and righteousness, loving God with my whole being, loving my neighbor as myself. These are all clear commands that are in Scripture, um, regardless of how I feel about them. And when it comes to those clear commands, we should contend for them. It's what uh, Jude, chapter, Jude verse 3 says, that, that we contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. That, that that gospel, that message of salvation is something we do not compromise on. We stand on that and we contend for that because that is what is commanded. The confusion enters in, and it's what we're going to see in Romans 14 when we start to talk about convictions and preferences. Often it's the it's the how we do things. How does this actually play out? I may, I, I may see something clearly in Scripture. We are to make disciples. Now, how we do that as a local church, there's some room here in variation in terms of how different evangelical churches carry out the role of making disciples. Certainly, we agree on proclaiming the gospel, but there are other areas where conviction enters in. What do you value? Where, where are my preferences? All of these things start to come into play, and they are addressed in Romans 14 and on into the beginning of 15. We'll focus on 14 this morning. Um, and, and, and we know from our study of the book of Acts that one of the reasons behind all of this, what, what lies behind Romans 14 is the book of Acts and the real reality that there are major ethnic differences in that early church. That the early church is comprised of Jews who believe in Jesus as the Messiah and Gentiles who have trusted now in Jesus as their Savior. And, and these two have not exactly been close friends, close allies to, to begin with, and they are now being brought together into this community. There is hostility that pre-existed that is now being brought together into this community, and there's things to sort out. For the Jews, there's dietary laws that are in the, the, the Mosaic law that they're trying to wrestle with what we do with these things that have been called clean and unclean. Even for the Gentiles, there is wrestling through food issues because um, some of the prime meat that you would get from your butcher was meat that had been sacrificed to a pagan idol. And so there was certain convictions and struggles there with, with that meat. And there was observance of days. Uh, he'll allude to it here in Romans 14. Paul also talks about it in Colossians 2. Do we observe Sabbath, feast days, fasting? Uh, are, there are other days that are celebrated in religions outside of Judaism and Christianity. What do we do with these? So let me start Romans 14. I'm going to read the first four verses just to get us started. Romans 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith... Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand." So, 
Coming into this, we, we realize again and just reemphasize the body of Christ is made up of different people, different social classes, different ethnicities, different ways of thinking. And one of the profound realities of the New Testament is, is God bringing together in Christ a body of believers where he tears down these barriers between us. Commentator Leon Morris writes, one of the difficulties the church has always faced is that included in its membership are the rich, the poor, the powerful, the powerless, those from every stratum of society, old, young, adults, children, conservatives, and radicals. People from a great number of nations are Christians and people of every temperament. It is a remarkable and beautiful thing when we see people coming together from all of these different backgrounds, all of these cultures, and worshiping and serving together, but it is not without its challenges, and that's what's coming to bear in Romans 14. And so Paul is being used by God to help believers navigate this treacherous area of convictions and preferences and opinions. So let's see what we can glean from this and what questions and principles we can take out of this. The, the, the first thing I would encourage you to notice is there is, a, there is an implicit acknowledgement in Paul's argumentation that one set of convictions was actually closer to the truth than the other. And we see that by virtue of the language he uses, weak and strong. He speaks of those who are weak in faith. He doesn't use strong until you get to chapter 15, verse 1, where he speaks of those who are strong. But the, the contrast is all throughout chapter 14, those who are weak, those who are strong. And so his emphasis at the very beginning of chapter 14, verse 1, the first phrase he uses is the one who is being weak in the faith. And we know in the Greek, you, you put something up front when you want to emphasize it. And so his emphasis here is on those who are weak in the faith. Paul is not saying that this is something that has to do with their faith in Jesus Christ. He's not saying there's something deficient about their belief in the gospel, about who Jesus is or what he's done. That's, that's not the question. What he's talking about here is how that faith in Christ is applied to their daily living. How the freedom and, and what they have in Christ now, how they apply that to the different things that they do every day. Yes, they believe that they are saved by grace through faith. Their faith is not deficient, but it now comes into play when there's, there's questions and doubts. If I eat this food, am I, am I disobeying God? If I don't celebrate this particular day, am I disobeying God? And they're, they're wrestling with doubt issues that, that Scripture seems to speak to, but they are continuing to struggle with the application of their faith to everyday life issues. So that's what he means when he says, those who are weak. Uh, even though the body of believers is taught freedom with respect to such things, they are still struggling to, to relish that freedom. So look down at verse 20 for just a second of, of Romans 14, verse 20, and he builds on this and says, Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. There's freedom in Christ. He says in verse 14, everything is indeed clean, and yet I'm not going to participate if it's going to cause somebody to stumble who may not be certain about that freedom or about the fact that that is clean. Um, Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17 make this, this very same point that different kinds of food, the, 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 the dietary laws, the days of feasting, the, the different celebrations, all of that is now 
fulfilled in Christ. His point in Colossians 2 is the Sabbaths and the festivals and the dietary things were all shadows that pointed to the substance who is Christ. And now he has come. The Messiah has come. He has fulfilled the law completely. He has died for our sin. He has died to save law breakers. And so the law is now fulfilled so that you and I have freedom in Christ. And so Paul is not hiding the fact here that some convictions are, that, that are being held by the weak in this case are not necessarily born out of a full understanding of the truth, that, that of having freedom in Christ. And yet, he's not being critical of them for holding on to this view. They still have room to grow. Let me quote Leon Morris one more time. Throughout the centuries of the Christian church, there have been people who, for reasons good or bad, have seen certain actions as things they must do and other things they must not do. And there have been others who have felt no compulsion either way. Their faith has made them strong. Remember, we're not talking here about clear commands. We're not talking about the authoritative things where the word of God is clear about the will of God or disobeying those. We're talking about preferences and convictions. And what Romans 14 allows is that some may hold convictions that are perhaps more biblically sustainable than others, and yet... The majority of the passage is speaking to those who we would presume to be the strong, and it is admonishing them about their approach to their brothers and sisters and how they bring to bear their convictions and their preferences. Remember again, verse 1 says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. We get tempted when we assume we know better when we assume we have more merit to our argument, we get tempted to believe that my job, my mission is to correct this person. It is to fix this person. It is to, to straighten her out, to, to show him what is right. And yet, how does scripture begin this passage? His, his comment to those who are stronger when you're dealing with those who are weaker is welcome him. The, the idea of the word welcome him, the command to welcome him is to walk alongside of him. It is to treat him as a dearly beloved friend who you come alongside of, not, in fact, he makes it clear in verse 1, not for the purpose of fixing him, not to quarrel over opinions. This isn't, come over here and walk with me so I can show you how you're wrong about this. This is come over and walk alongside me because I love you as a brother or sister in Christ and I want to walk with you. It's not to say there's not discipleship, there's not discussion over truth, but our primary calling here is to welcome him, not for the purpose of quarreling with him or judging his thoughts or opinions. So I'll put this in practical terms. Around our house, I am the, the turn things off person, and my wife Robin is the pick things up person. And so I am the one who follows her when she's gone into a room, and I, after she leaves, I go and turn out the light. She reminds me that the house is darker. In fact, after the first service when I preached this, she said, you know, a couple of skylights would, would you know, probably solve that issue. So that's not on my list. <laughs> I am the one who just, you know, turn it off, flip the switch. Nobody's in the room. Turn this off. She's the one who's picking up after me all the time. She's the one that I am leaving the piles or I'm leaving the clothes or leaving the stuff, and she's picking up the stuff that I am laying around. Now, there are advantages to saving on electricity, and to cleaning up. The question, though, becomes, what is your attitude in pursuing this? The call in Scripture is to welcome him, to come alongside, because when it goes wrong is, 
when I am now upset because, ah, oh, this, this shouldn't be on again. Why is this? And now my heart is churning. Now I'm starting to, to, to get stirred up for something I'm not called to get stirred up about. This isn't a clear command in Scripture that when you leave a room, you flip the light switch as much as we all tried to teach our kids that that was somehow somewhere in Scripture, right? When they were little, you know, turn off the lights when you leave the room. At what point does my attitude no longer become to welcome, but rather to quarrel over opinions? Because I'm, I'm sure that I'm right. All of you can relate to something that you've got with friends, with family, with children, with parents. So you, I'm sure I'm right on this. But verses 3 and 4 really elaborate on, on why you welcome him. It's because of two reasons. God has already welcomed him. That's the end of verse 3. And because he is the same master for both of us in verse 4. God has embraced this brother or sister in Christ. And, and God is ultimately the judge who stands over all of us. And so, yes, we have different opinions and preferences and convictions, and we struggle with these things. But if, if we're not talking about a clear command in Scripture, then don't despise each other over your opinion, because to do so is now to act like I am the master in this. I am that person's master. His emphasis here is we are both servants to our Lord, and, and your preference will ultimately stand or fall by virtue of the master's call on this, what, what God says. It, it, it's as we stand before our mutual master. So don't try to take his place in your brother's life or your spouse's life or your friend's life. Don't try to, to be the Holy Spirit. We've all had those moments when we've, we've, we've said or done things that are beyond the point of expressing a concern or an opinion where we are trying desperately to turn that heart, to fix that person, to bring to bear conviction in our words in some way that compel them to prove that they are wrong. Love them, speak the truth in a charitable way, and trust that God is the one who is the master. He's the one who's welcomed them. He's the one who will change them. He can do so. He's the master. Again, we're talking about areas of conviction, preference, not where there's a violation of a clear command in Scripture. We'll talk about that either next week or the week after and how that relates to how we deal with accusations. But Paul goes on, and, and he wants to establish the, that one of the goals in all of this is to understand that it's not our opinions that are God, it is the Lord who is God. And, and watch, as we read verses 5 through 9, note how many times he uses the phrase, the Lord, to speak of the one who is in ultimate authority. Verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of the dead and of the living." Do you see a phrase coming through there? See a little bit of a theme? As he's talked in this passage and said, don't, don't you try to be master in this area of preferences and convictions. Understand there already is a master to whom that brother or sister is accountable to. Love them. Certainly disciple them. Encourage them. Be a part of their life and engage with them. 
but you are not the master. In all that you do, honor the Lord as your master. Whether you live or die, all of life is to be lived in honor to him belonging to him. And so his, his focus there in verses 7 and 8 is, is, is that we, we honor him with our preferences and our convictions and how we live them out. The focus is not, wasn't then 2,000 years ago, and it's not today, even though the culture says it is, for none of us lives to himself. That, that's, the, that's the almighty, right? That myself and my desires and my opinions. And he is very clear to say, it, contrary to popular thinking, it is not all about me. It's not all about my opinions and my beliefs or my way of doing things. We live in the presence of our creator. Therefore, what we choose to do, what we abstain from, how we do what we do should first and foremost honor him and glorify him. So let me throw out some questions to you to, to, to get you to think about what we've read so far and, and help you apply it. When you engage with someone whose opinions or convictions differ from yours, what's your primary goal? Well, think about how you are engaging with people and, and, and they have a different opinion, different way of doing things. They want to do it this way. What is your primary goal. This is where we get into the, what's going on in my heart at this moment? When I, am, when I am now stating my opinion, but now I'm becoming a little bit more forceful about it because I really want my way. What's going on in my heart at that moment? What am I desiring? What do you want the most? This is the, the whole James 4 section on, on idols and, and how we, we quarrel because there's things we want and, and this comes to play when it's convictions and preferences because it's, it's not, we're not holding loosely. We're now determining, no, actually this is the way we do it. This, this is the shortcut we should take. This is the priority we should make. What's your goal? What does it look like, the second question, what does it look like to welcome as friends someone with whom you have a different opinion or preference? What does that look like to come alongside and to walk with that person, not in trying to fix them or straighten them out, but to love them and, and, and be a friend alongside. When was the last time you played Holy Spirit, pulling out all of the stops to try to convict someone, to convince them of a certain perspective? Any of us who've been parents for any length of time can find somewhere in there that, that we, we fall, because we've all crossed that line at some point where it was, I, I know God's spirit has to change his or her heart, but I, 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 if I go up a few octaves, if I talk a little longer, if I do something, I can, I can, I can change this, right? When was the last time? It, certainly, we should teach correct the things that parents are called to do, not, not, not to act as if everything is just sort of vague, where we are clear in scripture, we should be clear. There are times we cross that line where we are starting to act like God's spirit. How are you glorifying God in the midst of your disagreements over preferences or convictions? How, do you, how are you glorifying God? How, how is the, the fruit being born that demonstrates that you are striving to obey him? And then the last one is, just on a very practical level, how are you honoring God and what you participate in or abstain from? Depending on what your convictions are, your personal convictions, how are you seeking to honor him as you've made those choices? Have you thought about ways in which this pleases God, in which this honors God? All right, let me read on. Verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? 
Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account for himself to God. Here is, is just largely building on what Peter, uh, on what Paul has already done in, in verse 8 when he gave all those references to the Lord and honoring the Lord. He's now just building on that. And he keeps wanting us to see who the actual master is. My opinion, my conviction is not king. God is king. And, and, and he's reminding us again, we must all give an account. Our first obligation is to him. So how we do the things we do, how we interact with those around us, all is, is an act of our worship to God. Each of us will give an account. You and I need to remember that, that our judgments, our opinions, our convictions are all influenced by the fact that we are sinners. They're all flawed in some degree because we are flawed. There's, there's holes in our convictions sometimes, and it's because we're, we're sinners. And that's why I need to be charitable in how I hold these things. It's not to say that you haven't come up with a solid conviction that is based on biblical truth, but now how you implement that, how you communicate that, how you engage with those who've come to a different conviction, that's where we are called to be charitable and to realize we are under the same lordship of Jesus Christ, and therefore we are striving together as friends, not as, not as opponents. Let's read just the rest of the chapter, and then we'll, we'll wrap up here. Romans 14, verse 13, therefore... Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. There's a lot in that passage. A lot to unpack. We won't, unfortunately, unpack every piece of it, but there's a couple things that, that I hope you see and I just want to point out. One of the key reasons that Paul is admonishing the strong here not to push on the weak is if a brother or sister acts out of doubt, if they proceed to do something, maybe because they've been nagged into it or they've been told that they're just being foolish or weak, and, and yet they are struggling with whether or not this is sin, if they go ahead and do it when they are doubting, then for that person, it is sin. That, that's the point of verse 23, is that indeed, if, if I'm struggling with doubt about something, if I'm thinking, I don't know if I should do this or not, I don't know if this pleases God or not, this, this may even displease God, but because I, I feel compelled by someone guilting me in some way or someone pushing me in some way, and I go ahead and do it, what I am essentially saying is, God, I'm not really sure. This might be sin. 
sorry about that. I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. I'm not going to sit and try to figure it out. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. And that's why he says that's not acting out of faith. And what's not of faith is sin. If, I, if I'm not sure, then I shouldn't do it. And so if I am the, 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 the so-called stronger brother in this case, my goal is to not push you to do something that you are struggling with, that you are having doubts over, because for you, that is sin. This is one of the implications of, of all of this teaching in Romans 14 about the lordship of Jesus Christ. In, in, in light of the fact that he is the master, I should not be careless about my obedience. I should not be flippant about my obedience and say, well, maybe this is, maybe this isn't, don't really know, I'm just going to go ahead and do it and hope for the best. That's, that's, the, that's the it's easier to ask forgiveness and get, than get permission line. That, that's, okay, I, I get where that works at your workplace or as you're dealing with other people. That is not what we say in front of a holy God. That's not the principle that guides us in relation to a holy God. We either act in faith and we believe in what he has called us to do or what he has forbidden us from doing, or we hold and we wait. And we don't act out of doubt at that moment. We strive to be obedient to him. But, but I would have you notice again, here he's reemphasizing the point that he's already made. He says it in verse 14. He says it again down in verse 20. And that is that Paul's own conviction as an apostle of Jesus Christ is all of this food is now clean. It's the same lesson that, that the Lord teaches Peter in Acts chapter 10 when Peter's struggling to go to the Gentiles and, and all of the food that they have on their table that Peter has all his life understood was unclean and now the Lord tells him, no, no longer. That because of the Savior's work, because of what Jesus Christ has done, you now have freedom. It's, it's okay. And Paul's reiterating that here, that this is how it is, and yet... His call is still, don't cause that person to stumble who's struggling still in that area, who still hasn't come to that place of full conviction that you are, who's still working through these things. You still are not called to just roll over that person. He implores believers to hold their preferences and their convictions in such a way as to serve Jesus Christ. There's the, the gist of what he's saying here, is that if you, if you do this in submission to Christ, the fruit that is born then is righteousness and peace and joy and edification. As you engage with that person with whom you are struggling on, on, on opinions and preferences and convictions, the fruit that should come forth is fruit of the Spirit. Righteousness, joy, peace, and mutual upbuilding, he says. And in fact, he also says the, the, the rule that governs all of this, he mentions in verse 15. If your brother's grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Rather, you are destroying the one for whom Christ died. In all of this, in all of our application of this, it is the rule of the love of Christ that must govern our exercise of our convictions, our preferences, our opinions. The love of Christ must compel us in this. And that's what must be coming through us to the people that we are dealing with. The, the, the chapter break between 14 and 15 is, is really kind of unfortunate because chapter 15 is just expanding on this. And, and what chapter 15 is, is going on to say is, look at Jesus Christ and look at the humility of Christ. He is our example. We strive to, for peace and to build others up because that is what Jesus Christ did. We welcome others because he in grace has welcomed us. All, all of our 
wrong opinions and misguided convictions that we had when we were not believers. God in his grace has brought us into his family and has welcomed us. And his point is now be humble, show the love of Christ. Let that compel you in how you exercise your preferences and opinions. That's why you hold them loosely. Again, that verse 15, if your brothers grieve by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. The freedom we have in Christ is to be used to love others. And so the strong person, the one here who may indeed have an even seemingly clearer biblical basis for what they do, not a clear command, but they've built their conviction on some things that they see in Scripture, that person still is to exercise their freedom in a way that loves the person with whom they differ. It's not to destroy them, not to fix them, but to demonstrate the love of Christ because that's what prevails. So, are you holding your preferences and convictions in such a way as to clearly love those who differ from you on these things? Do they, do they see that? Do they see you holding them loosely? Think about how you communicate with somebody who holds a different opinion or perspective. It's got a different way of doing things, different order of priorities, different direction that we're going to take. Different app they're going to use for driving. Oh, just come up with any of the, the differences over which, well, why don't you use this? Why don't you do it this way? All of those things that challenge us. Are they receiving peace and grace and joy and righteousness from my communication with them? Are, are, they, are they being built up and edified by how I am expressing to them a different conviction or preference or do they feel like they are being destroyed by my words? That's the language Paul uses here. And, and, and so think about how you speak to others when you are discussing, let's get real practical here, when you are discussing politics, or you are discussing coronavirus, or you are discussing wearing face coverings as you all graciously are, are, are doing out here this morning, or you are discussing racial issues, or you are discussing how to fold the clothes, or what to watch on TV, or what movie to watch, whether this, that movie's appropriate or not. As you are talking through these things, do people unmistakably see you submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and endeavoring to bring to bear the fruit of righteousness and peace and joy? Do they see you striving to submit to his Lordship so that you are standing alongside that person? as one who loves them and who is a friend with them, so that together you would both receive grace from him? Or are you gripping your opinions and your preferences and your convictions in such a way that you are destroying people around you? Because this is the way it has to be done. This is the right way. Do it my way, and it'll all be so much simpler, right? Hold loosely these things that govern our relationships with others. Strive to love your neighbors in these difficult areas. Let's pray together. Father, this is a challenging passage in Scripture because we're all there at one point or another where we believe that we have solid arguments and a just cause and not necessarily a clear command in Scripture. Father, forgive us for those times. Forgive me for those times when um, I have been about my way, my 
way of doing it, my priorities, my objectives, over and above those of others around. Lord, thank you for the, the bomb that your word is in coming over our, our guilt and the conviction that we experience from it and bringing to bear the grace and forgiveness and power of your spirit at work in us. We pray for grace to love others, to communicate well, to envision ourselves walking alongside that person, even though that's almost difficult nowadays as we are so spaced from each other. Lord, may we find those ways to adapt and to, to be alongside as friends, even with those with whom we differ. May we find ways to communicate with them about preference issues and even convictions in ways that show that we are first and foremost striving to be submitted to you and to your lordship and that we are loving them because of that, because of you loving us first. Father, I pray if there's anyone listening this morning who is not trusting in Jesus Christ alone, we, we see in Scripture that is one of the, the clear commands, that there is salvation in no other name given among men than the name of Jesus Christ, that it is only through faith and trust in, in the, the perfect law keeper, the perfect Son of God who gave himself in our place on the cross, that there is redemption from sin and forgiveness for our law-breaking. Lord, pray that you would compel anyone listening this morning who is not trusting in Christ alone, that that is the beginning point. All of the, the rest of this is follow-up to that. It is what we strive to do as people who are submitted to you, but, but we begin by trusting in Christ. Help us this week, Lord, to use our time well to see differences as opportunities with which to extend your grace as opportunities for us to grow. It's opportunities for us to love others. Thank you, Father, as we've walked through and continue to walk through what seems like for so many of us one of the most difficult seasons we've ever been in in the course of holding to things and dealing with preferences and opinions and struggling through so many different issues. Help us as believers to, to especially demonstrate a heart of service, a heart of love, a desire for righteousness and peace and joy and, and edification that we would build up those to whom we speak. Thank you for welcoming us in your grace, for your son giving his life while we were yet sinners dying for us. And now may we, with your spirit's help and by your grace, may we live like Christ amongst the people around us with their different opinions and preferences. May we live differently among them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.